Hi, I'm Peter Kleins, author of Terminus and Paradox Bound and numerous other books. You can find me online at peterkleins.com, on Twitter, on Instagram. And right now, you are listening to The Dave and Steve Show. Previously on The Dave and Steve Show. Merry, Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, right. You, you know what? You know what? It's, it's JC's birthday, and I'm having a cocktail, <laughs> and I feel good about it. Well, I have exciting Hang news Hang on a about second. Them. Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt, and I'm going to let you get to it, but what is the cry for attention tonight? I'd rather be his whore than your wife. <laughs> You put the, a lot of makeup on your butt back then, I remember. Yeah. Hey, how do you get the makeup on your face just right so it looks like your guitar? Right. How do you how do you make it? Because then you hold the guitar up and it's like, wow, that looks like his face is part of the guitar. I wonder if sure. he can play his face and it sounds like a guitar. On a related note, there is no bigger dick move than if you're playing some kind of number guessing game and you do the price is right thing to somebody. You go one <laughs> over. Agree. There is no bigger. You you are the scum of the earth if you're the person who plays a game that way. Yeah. See here, uh, Mr. Green, it says, let's see. Uh, it says here, you, uh, you asteroid miner? It, there's a lot of things that went in to this before the show started. Steve showed up with a hat, and then I said, oh, hey, well, let's, let's pretend it's hat night, and Dave doesn't know. Oh, I'll go get a hat. Ah! I, I, okay. Show number six. 77 of the Dave and Steve Show. I am Dave. Sitting right alongside me, a mere 27 miles away, is Steve. Thank you, Dave. And for parts unknown. For parts unknown? Yeah. For parts unknown. From parts unknown, the lovely inbox of Tracy. Uh, I love hat night. Off and running on show number 77. I can't believe I screwed this up on what is one of our biggest nights in the history of this podcast. And the reason really for is. that is because of our guest. Our guest this week is none other then J.J. French, lead guitarist and founding member of Twisted Effing Sister. If you don't, if you're too young to know who Twisted Sister is, understand that the impact that they had in the in the early days of MTV on the world of rock and roll and metal in general is, I, I would say, borderline unsurpassed. The the imprint that they left on MTV and the resulting bands that followed and tried to mimic what they had done and the formula that they created, it, it had never happened before. It'll never happen again. They were in a unique time and they took full advantage of it. They had catchy, unbelievable songs and they had a ridiculous over-the-top look that just made them stand out above everybody else at the time. Tracy, I know you had said at one point in last week's show that JJ was what you would consider a childhood hero of sorts and that you actually patterned your look after him. Yeah, that it's exactly it. The way that he looked was uh, how I wanted to look. And I felt like I could, I could pull off about 35% of it. And I did. And, uh, but yeah, of, of, of that band, JJ French was always the one that I liked the most uh, from, from early on. So it was a, it was a sure as a treat to talk to him. And, and given all that, given what fans we are in general of, of the band and of what they've done, I want to give us a little bit of a pat on the back because I listened to this interview again in sort of editing and putting it all together. We actually didn't fanboy out too much on JJ, and I think we, we could have. And I, I, actually think, I actually think we did a pretty good job of holding it in because I know 
Tracy was giddy on the inside. I know I was giddy on the inside. Steve, maybe not so much. He he hated Twisted Sister, and and frankly, told he us, really did. Yeah, he told us JJ was a bit of a douche once the interview was all done and we we're off the air. But I said none of those oh. things. Yeah, that's right. That I don't recall either any of oh, that either. Okay, maybe I dreamt I was, that. I was gonna I was gonna re recount this this really fun Twisted Sister story that I shared with Dave about the time I peddled my little ass up um, to meet him. Uh, to meet Dave, not, you know, JJ. <laughs> to meet Dave up on the, on the uh, overpass in between his house and my house. And I, the whole way there, I practiced singing Twisted Sister. And then when Dave got there, I'm like, hey, I can sing Twisted Sister really good. And Dave's like, all right, let's hear it. And then I didn't. I didn't sing Twisted Sister very good. I, yeah. I sang it really pretty terrible. And then um, Dave rode the rest of the way back um, laughing, laughing. Uh, over his handlebars and telling me what a shitty twisted sister singer I was. <laughs> that yeah, sounds like that. Days. That does sound like me. I can't. I don't remember it, of course, but I also will not deny it. I think that probably was me. All right. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Mr. JJ French from Twisted Sister. Our guest this week on the Dave and Steve Show is a founding member and guitarist of one of the most legendary rock bands on the planet, Twisted Sister. And while he may have hung up his guitar and stage clothes in 2016, he is still making substantial contributions to the world of rock music and beyond. He's joining us on this episode to discuss his brand new book, Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. J.J. French. J.J., thank you so much for being on the Dave and Steve Show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate so so I, I want to right off the bat, I, can you just, for the listeners who have not bought your book, but after listening to this, I guarantee you're going to go buy your book. Can you just give us a quick summary of the book itself? I wrote this book so that my wife would stop bothering me. about <laughs> telling stories that she's heard a thousand fucking times. You write a book and give it out at dinner parties. So the minute somebody asks you a question, how'd you get the name? What was it like when you first went on tour? Were you always a transvestite rock and roller? Uh, really, what kind of drugs did you use? Really? Is it true you didn't drink? That way, I could just say, buy the book. Here's his email. And can we talk about anything else? Please. Listen, you know Marshall Amplifiers, right? Yeah, you know Marshall. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Jim Marshall passed away several years ago, but he was a good friend of mine. He was married seven times. And I said, why? He goes, because every one of my wives said, do I have to hear the fucking story of how you started Marshall Amplifiers every goddamn day of my life? Somebody say, calls you up and says, how did it start? Pete Townsend told you to saw the box in half. Is that right? Anyway, um, you can imagine what it's like to be married to me. It's why I'm on my third wife. And uh, I'm a storyteller, which makes it all the more burdensome. Uh, because she has to kind of hear these things. Anyway, the book is a, it's called Twisted Business. What it is, is it's a bizwar. What is a bizwar? Good question. I'll just conduct this fucking interview by myself. <laughs> yeah, this is, this, this is going really well. Please continue. Uh, a bizwar is a business book and a memoir, like a rom-com is a romantic comedy. I coined the phrase and gave it to my publisher. I said, here is a marketing genius. Bizwar. <laughs> I said, every business book really is a bizwar because really guys or girls who become well-known in business uh, basically reflect their philosophies of life, which they learned growing up. And me, in my case, I started out as a drug dealer, and that's exactly why I became successful. Um, it, you know, it actually starts out in the Boy Scouts. 
and then goes into uh, drug dealing, which really kind of tells you that Boy Scouts lead directly to heroin use. If you follow <laughs> the trail of the book, you'll see how that actually is a direct line. But I don't need them to be sued for any other reasons than pedophilia. So we'll stay away from the Boy Scouts right now and veer on to my life. I led a pretty crazy life. Grew up in the 60s, which was a great time to be born. And I am hated by the kids of all my friends' parents because you saw Jimi Hendrix for a dollar. It's like when I was a boy, <laughs> we didn't have gasoline. We used horse buggies. Right. And, you know, I saw Zeppelin as an opening band. What? I mean, my wife gave me a shirt that says, I saw, I'm so old, I saw Zeppelin on stage. I have a shirt that says, I'm so old, I saw the Grateful Dead open for Janice Joplin. <laughs> <laughs> That, you know, I mean, let's talk about the, I mean, aging is really weird, especially as it pertains to rock and roll audiences. You ever go to a Stones concert and wonder why the fans don't clap between songs? Because they're so old, they're afraid the lights will go on in the arena. That's why they don't clap. Um, so we have a, a phenomenon of, basically have a phenomenon of a 49-year career. And the book, the book is a bizwar, and it tells you the story of my, of my teenage years and then uh, then Twisted Sister, and then the the, the business lessons of Twisted Sister, because I managed the band for three years. Well, and JJ, I think this is one of the things, just I even in hearing you talk now, so you think about a band who you describe in the book, and, and it's absolutely true, as at one point probably the third largest band in the world. Absolutely a legendary rock band. And I think it would be very easy for you to approach a book like this with, an attitude of, listen, I made millions in rock and roll. I've made millions on the business side of things. Let me tell you how all this works. And so it was a refreshing surprise to, to crack open the book. And from the very first page almost, you, tell, you, you, you have a certain amount of humility around this. And you tell the story of your brother asking you, how do you do this? And then basically chronicling all of the failures, setbacks, whatever you want to call them along the way. And for you to call that out right away, it's actually, in a very good way, it's very disarming, or at least it was to me as a reader, to read this and go, oh, this guy's made mistakes just like anybody else. He's Yes, he's been at the absolute epitome of success, but he's also had some massive, massive setbacks along the way. So it put me in that frame of mind of like, okay, now I'm along for the ride. Now I'm ready to hear what lessons you've learned along the way, because you're not approaching this from an I know everything. It's I didn't know everything. I still don't know everything. But here are the things that I want to pass on to you that I have learned. Well, my daughter thinks she knows everything. <laughs> and of course, she, and, you know, and I tell her the reason why my daughter says, you don't remember anything, Dad. I said, look, darling, here's the deal. A brain is a hard drive. I have 70 years worth of information. You've got about 20, which means you're fucking empty headed. OK, so that's <laughs> right. problem. Like, you, you, you know, you have to fill in an awful lot of stuff. Now, I love my daughter. And, and as she said to me when I told her that I was going to have a podcast, she said, if you can make money talking, you're going to be the richest person on earth. <laughs> and I said, if you can make money using a cell phone, you'll be the second fucking richest person. <laughs> <So> anyway, <clears throat> um, but no, the thing is, the band was turned down more times in a bedsheet in a whorehouse. We've come back more times than Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees. And that's the truth. Uh, it's all about reinvention. And and if, if you're going to be honest about anything in your life, you're going to talk about the highs and the lows. My highs were really high and my lows were really low. I uh, I talked to my brother in the intro of the book and I explained to him when he asked me uh, that, that the line about how do you do what you do? And we chron and he chronicled my life for me in about five minutes and scared the shit out of me when he did. <laughs> I said, I guess, Jeff, the difference between you and me is I'm an entrepreneur. You know, you're not. Entrepreneurs are born with asbestos underwear. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, we can take the heat. Uh, we take a lot of chances. We, we can win big and we can lose really big. 
And when we lose, the, the, the lows are devastating and cripple most people. And, um, and so what the book is basically is about reinvention. And we all have to reinvent ourselves. I think we reinvent ourselves all our life without even realizing it. I mean, think about it seriously. Every September in the beginning of the school year, don't you buy new clothes and go to school and think it's going to be different from the year before? I mean, Not anymore. <laughs> well, that's because nobody goes to school. But back in the day when education had, had something to do with anything, yeah. um, you know, you did. And then you reinvented yourself when you went to college and you reinvented yourself when you got your first job and you reinvented yourself when, you know, you meet a serious spouse or, 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 or partner or whatever. And you reinvent yourself when you have to market yourself in a new job. I mean, everything is about reinvention. And, and nothing is more indicative of reinvention and you guys know this than the entertainment business which is a what have you done for me lately yeah. sure. yep sorry about that no you that take is, it that is none that is a what have you done for me world and um uh because in my business as you know if you have a hit record the first question they say is so what's next jj it's like give me a fucking break can i just enjoy five minutes of this success so we don't have that luxury so we in the entertainment world have to reinvent ourselves all the time. And I decided to chronicle the history of my reinvention through the twisted method of reinvention, which is what the book details. JJ, one of the things I loved about Twisted Sister, like even back when I was in high school, is that, uh, and it was beyond the, the cross-dressing, of course, which brought me in and won my heart, but um, the songs weren't about like, you know, getting to tons of girls or they didn't like go into like satanic imagery and stuff that was going on at that time. But it, every one of your songs like at that time like a lot of them were about grit and tenacity about not giving up picking yourself up and i had titles of songs from the twisted sister catalog and choruses running through my head with every chapter of your book but can you tell me like how much of this book was written in song format like many years ago as you learned the music business well that's a great question no one has ever asked me that congratulations no, you're welcome. No one has ever gone to depth. No, in fact, in fact, I don't know these lyrics, and 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 uh, have almost never listened to them. And, and <laughs> almost to the embarrassment of me, I was on a TV game show, and the answer was we're not going to take it. And the clue was there was a line in the song, and I got it wrong. So, uh, and then I found out that a rabbi was was ordained as a rabbi to a Twisted Sister song. To make things even funnier, it was a deaf rabbi. It almost sounds like a spinal tap. Moment. <laughs> right. And to make things even weirder, the deaf rabbi's name was Darby Lee, which is not exactly Shlomo Abramovitz. That, Darby Lee sounds like a freaking stripper, you know, yeah. in Vegas. So a deaf rabbi named Darby Lee was ordained, and you can watch it online. It's on YouTube to, uh, to tear it loose. And when I met this deaf rabbi and we had a conversation as to how he got into the band and he wears cochlear implants and, and he can feel the power. And he said when he was 16, his brother took him to a Twisted Sister concert. Show, shows you how much that kind of Jewish upbringing will do you. And and by the way, I'm Jewish, so I can say those things. But um, uh, he said he felt the power of the music and he loved and he went from there to Black Sabbath and ACDC and, and blah, 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 blah. Um, so I so I said, why tear it loose? And he goes, well, tear it loose is a very empowering song. And, and so I emailed D. I said, dude, I said, I just had lunch with a deaf rabbi named Darby <laughs> who was ordained to tear it loose. What the hell does tear it loose mean? And D wrote back, you know, it's a song about empowerment and blah, blah. And he goes, I'm glad to know somebody pays attention to my lyrics. So um, the answer is D's a great songwriter. He did not write about the normal things. D was an angry young man, a blue collar kid from the South Shore of Long Island who had an ax to grind and always wanted to prove himself. And in his lyrics, in, in truth, were these messages about 
empowerment and never taking no for an answer and always pushing ahead. And so in that regard, we are very similar people. Um, he's a more creative side, a more business side. Uh, so that's why the synergy works between the two of us, because he was the, he pushed the creative end of it and wrote the songs. And then someone had to sit there and put the puzzle pieces together as a business. Otherwise you have nothing. And that's why it worked. And I'm a big believer in collaboration because I do not sing. My voice sucks. I mean, God created Lou Reed so I could do cover material. Let, let's, yeah. let's yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, how do you know that you fuck up a Lou Reed song? Sing it on key. That's how you fuck up a Lou Reed song. So anybody can sing Lou Reed and Bob Dylan. I mean, Dylan can't even sing Dylan. You know, yes, I saw Dylan I saw it about a year ago. I swear to God, I went with one of his producers. None of us knew what the fuck he was singing. I mean, I was five songs in and had no clue. And finally, somewhere in the middle of one song, I heard Tangled Up in Blue. And I went, oh, that's Tangled Up in Blue. And then somewhere else down the line, I heard Highway 61. And I went, oh, that must be Highway 61. But, you know, putting the unintelligible aside for a moment, um, I believe in collaboration. And uh, and with D, I found a perfect collaborator, as well as the other guys in the band. If the band didn't succeed, you guys wouldn't be interviewing me. I wouldn't have a book, and you would give a shit about my life. So I am the beneficiary of, of wise collaborative uh, results, including the book. My, I'm co-writing. I have co-writer Steve Farber, who writes best-selling business books. Why? I wanted to have a best-selling business book, and I wanted to have a book that people paid attention to. And 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 I have so many stories. But if I wrote it on my uh, by myself, it would be the 16th volume history of the Jews. Yeah, you know, yeah. it would just be right. an unending story. And you know, Steve goes, "Okay, stop, stop right now. This is important. That's important. This is not really that important." Blah 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 blah. Let's kind of frame it. And so, without Steve, it wouldn't have been framed the, the way it was. So I give him all the, the credit for for helping me do that. And again, that is a byproduct of collaborative thinking. Well, and you talk about the book and the way that the book, for those of you who have yet to purchase the book, the way that it's structured is each chapter is effectively a letter from the word twisted. And they stand for things, tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, discipline. Now, if you want to dig deeper into those, go get the book, read about them, because each chapter has a unique and, and substantial message to it that's really important to read. But I wanted to, before you got on, JJ, Tracy and I were kind of going back and forth a little bit. And I said, you know, when I when I look through the chapters, the one that stands out to me as the sort of linchpin in all of this is trust. Tracy had a different take. His was tenacity is what is the linchpin in all this. Do you see with all of these, do you see one that is the sort of cornerstone of all of these? And if so, what would that be? Another great question. Anyone who wonders if you guys have the ability to ask great questions? Do you have the ability to ask great questions? I really like this. Um, okay. So here's, how, here's my breakdown. Without tenacity, all of it is irrelevant. Because tenacity is the ability to come back over and over and over and over again and to understand the need to come back over and over again. And there are plenty of lessons about, about you know, you hear the thing um, when the tough going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. These are cliches, but there, there's a truism to that cliche. And, it, and it's handling defeat and handling rejection um uh, that really is the cornerstone so t you know tenacity is important you know the boxer joe lewis had a quote which i loved and he said when you get knocked down you can't get back up so fast that nobody didn't know you got knocked down so take the freaking 10 count and gather your thoughts and figure it out and so 
so what the tenacity chapter is, it's the ability to handle the multitudes of rejection. So yeah, that T of tenacity is probably the single greatest part of it. And then comes the rest of it. So I would say my vote eh, is tenacity. So when it, you know, when it comes to tenacity, I know for me personally, I can take things if they're going wrong or working against me is a sign that I'm going in the wrong direction. But in your chapter, you said I was either the smartest guy because I kept pushing for my goal or the dumbest because I didn't know when to stop. When's the best time to know the difference or does it even matter to know the difference? Oh man. Um, when I say I was, you know, I was too dumb to know when to stop. It's that was really the, the epitome of self deprecating humor. The truth is, is that there were always guardrails in my head as to how much crap I could absorb before it was time to pull the nuclear option and to say, you can't go any further. Um, and those guardrails are instinctive, which is the W part of the book, which is wisdom. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it, it's knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know and being smart enough to know the difference between the two. I knew what I knew. I knew what I didn't know. I know what I, what I needed to know. And I knew that I needed to know certain things within a certain time frame to keep the machine rolling in a forward direction. So the band had the luxury of existing in a time where bands could make a living playing locally. So let me ask you guys a question. Where are you located? Where we're are you guys we're located? in the Seattle area. Okay. So Obviously, you were familiar with the Seattle grunge scene that became huge, correct? Sure, sure of course. Yep. Were you of the age that you went to see those bands at that time? Well, so we're, believe it or not, JJ, we're a little bit older than that in terms of I was the, I was the Motley Crue, I was the Twisted Sister, I was that guy who was into that type of music, and when grunge came along and sort of stepped on it all, there was there was a, I've learned to appreciate that music without a doubt, but I had no desire to go see that music. So it's a little bit different in terms of whether we went out. But for all three of us, live music has always been a huge part of we've gone to concert after concert after concert. When my uncle took me to my first concert that was ACDC, that opened up the doors for me. Like from that point on, I only wanted to see live music. And so we have seen a lot of live music, but maybe not so much on the grunge front. All right. Well, I was using that only from a time frame perspective, not necessarily as a genre perspective, because this is what I'm going to explain to you. Did you guys ever spend time in the bars going to see copy bands? Did that ever happen in your life? Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you were going to bars and seeing local copy bands, you know, cover bands. Yep. How big were these bars? 200 people, 300 people like that? Yeah, usually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So in the New York tri-state area, in the 70s, there was a phenomenon that never happened before and will never happen again. The drinking age was 18 to begin with, which meant that the effective age of the kids going was 15 because they had fake proof that they made in shop class, not that mm -hmm. shop class exists anymore. <laughs> but back in the day, you just bring tracing paper and you can make a driver's license. You know, I mean, it was really easy. So think of the fact that there's thousands and thousands of kids in the New York, Connecticut, Westchester area to begin with. Okay thousands mm -hmm. now cover bands whether they were uh allman brothers or southern rock cover bands or doors type cover bands or zeppelin type cover bands the cover bands got to be really good in fact they got to be better than the bands they were covering because they actually cared about the music more than the bands they were covering 
So if you went to see an Aerosmith cover band, back in the day, Aerosmith couldn't play. Sure, and I yeah. give them all the credit in the world. They got their shit together. But in the 70s, they were horrible. And I was a huge Aerosmith fan, saw them many times, and they were awful. And they got so bad that um, when Joe Perry left, they still continued to perform under, under the moniker The Mystery Band. You probably don't even know this, okay? Mm-hmm. But they used to play in the Long Island club scene. Aerosmith, known as The Mystery Band, because they couldn't use the name Aerosmith because they were so embarrassingly bad. Anyway, so fill you in. So the cover scene, the cover bar scene started out with people with 200, 300, 400. Then the clubs got bigger, 500, 600, 700. Then the clubs got bigger, 1,000, 1,200, 1,500. Then they got bigger, 2,000, 2,500. Then 3,000, then 4,000, then 5,000. Do you believe we've had bars that held up to 5,000 people? It's insane. So, So when you are going through that period in the mid to late 70s, early 80s, and you're able to travel to Long Island, New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, and you could go to these clubs that held up to three to 5,000 people. And you could see Twisted Sister, Crystal Ship, Zebra, um, um, all these cover bands, uh, Rat Race Choir. Rat Race Choir did, did Tull better than Tull and Pink Floyd better than Pink Floyd. And Zebra did Zeppelin better than Zeppelin. And Crystal Ship did The Doors better than The Doors. Twisted was this weird anomaly because we were this kind of band that wanted to become original. But the point is that we were forced to become professional acts because we were playing in professional situations on a nightly basis. And when you could do this on a nightly basis, night after night after night, four, five, six days a week, four or five shows a night, you become really good at what you do. So trying to explain to somebody the gestation, the gestational environment that we came out of is next to impossible. That's why I listed all the shows at the back of the book to kind of give you an idea of like the roughly 9,000 performances that we gave because we were able to do five shows a night, six nights a week, which only means that in a year you're playing, you know, 1,400 performances and you learn how to get really good by doing that. And then the clubs are gigantic. So there are plenty of kids who are ages 16 to 25 in our day who could go to Nassau Coliseum if they wanted to, to see Led Zeppelin or whatever, but they could easily go out five nights a week to these gigantic clubs, massive clubs, and see bands like us with massive PA systems and lights, and that's just as satisfying to them as it would have been to go to Nassau Coliseum or Madison Square Garden. So that is a completely unique environment that will never happen again because the drinking age is 21. There's all sorts of restrictions. It just won't happen. But we came out of a very exciting period, and that's one of the reasons why the band developed the way it developed so that we, we when we were exposed to the national consciousness through MTV. And instead of just being an overnight sensation, we were a 18 month pregnant woman who gave birth to quintuplets. Right. Sure. You know, we were so prepared. It was stupid. I mean, we were so prepared that we blew everybody off the stage every night all the time. Why? Cause that's all that we ever did. We became a predatory rock band. Our goal was to blow bands off the stage because the more bands we blew off the stage, the more popular we got, the more money we got paid. Doesn't mean I don't like them. Doesn't mean I don't respect them. Also, doesn't mean they're not better than us. That's not even the issue. It's the ability to entertain and the ability to put on a phenomenal show to the point where our attitude was, if you can blow us off the stage, have at it. You know why? Because the guy who spent five or six or seven bucks that night will get a great show. Yeah. So please knock yourself out. Blow us off the stage. If you're going to play with us, we'll give you all the lights, all the PA. The, I don't give a shit. Take, come on, come on, come on, man. Let's just go. Let's 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 go. Let's put on a fantastic performance for the fans. By the way, the sirens are they're coming to get me. <laughs> right, right. 
I swear talk, I, talk faster. We need all of it. Um, but, but that is a unique philosophy that most musicians won't even admit to. Well, and, and I, this, is, this is one of the things that struck me by reading this book is, and it's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. This is going to be a very long-winded question, but I promise I'll get there. The, the question itself is, do you feel like entrepreneurs can be built or are entrepreneurs born? And as I read through your book, there's a moment in the book where you very specifically make the conscious choice as a young musician, are you going to be a rock star or are you going to be a musician? And the quote that you give is, I can play 10,000 notes to three people, but I can play three notes to 100,000 people. And that's a very conscious choice that you had to make. And as I read through your book, whether it's topping cookie sales, whether it's striking a deal for the high school that you get to attend, marked up drugs in Amsterdam, all these things. If you haven't read the book, read the book and you'll know exactly what I'm referring to. But all of this comes back to when I, when I look back at your journey, it seems as though almost from day one, you had that entrepreneurial spirit within you. You applied it to rock and roll, but you could have applied it to a number of things depending on the path that life took you. You're very, when you, when you touch on uh, catastrophes that can hit a band or hit a business or hit anything else, you talk about being, and I may not have the wording exactly right, but you talk about proactive versus reactive. And I feel like a lot of times you've spent your life being very proactive from an early stage. Is that something hardwired into people or is that something that people can learn along the way? I think you're hardwired to a degree. You know, what makes a gold medal skater a gold medal skater? The gold medal skater gets up at four o'clock in the morning and does it for eight hours. The average person is not going to do that. They're just not going to do that. Right. They have to be driven. They have to be something in their DNA. You know, if you want to be the first chair at the Philharmonic violin, you know, you're playing 12 hours a day for 15 years, you know, and, and most people don't want to do that. I mean, entertainment exists because most people want to be entertained. They don't want to do what they have to do to be the entertainer or the entertainee. Right. And all the greats of all the greats in any walk of life have made ultimate sacrifices, whether they knew it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, or maybe they grudgingly acknowledge it because they said my parents beat me with a coat hanger if I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the fact is, is I think there's a hardwired aspect. You know, I was really hardwired. Uh, which you know, another example of that, which I didn't get in the book. I ran two marathons. I did it on a bet. I ran my first marathon in 1981 because a club owner saw me reading a running magazine and said, hey, man, I'll give you 100 bucks to run a marathon. And I had never run more than a mile. And I took him up on the bet, and I got into the 1981 marathon. Then I bought a magazine, How to Run a Marathon. I followed the 16-week course, and I ran a marathon. Then he said, do it under four hours. I did it in four hours and nine minutes. It turns out I did it in 350 because it took me 20 minutes to get to the starting line. In those days, the chips, they didn't have chips in the bibs. Yep. So, mm. so it started when the gun went off. Now you can be at the back of the line and – you don't start until you cross the start line. So I actually did it in less than four hours. I did it as a bet, and I won the. I got the four hundred. I uh, got the hundred dollars, um, because I'm driven that way. So I think you're hardwired. Also, you know, entrepreneurs themselves. I, I I've come to the conclusion you become an entrepreneur for one of two reasons. You either have this unbelievable idea, and you're willing to sacrifice everything you've ever done in life to bring it to the world, because they have to know it, and they've got to come up. This has just never been done. Unbelievable. Yep. Or or you can, or you take an existing idea because you think you can make it better. And that's why you become an entrepreneur. And in my case, with a rock band, obviously there'd been 10,000 rock bands before Twisted Sister. I saw the dolls and said I could do that better. You know, they, they were not good. They looked great, but they weren't good. That was my arrogance. 
that was my argument solely. You know, people say to me, oh, the Dolls is the Dolls. That. No, the Dolls were just an awful band. I mean, let's just be real. If they didn't look like women, they would have just sucked and been a sucky band. They looked great, and that was the allure of the Dolls. And I saw them a ton of times. So people say, you never saw them? Bullshit. Not only did I see them, but my friend Peter Jordan was Arthur Kane's bass player behind the scenes, and Arthur was too fucked up to be able to play in that standing. Oh, no. They, they backed him up on the amplifier, and they perched him on two microphones. Behind the stage was Peter Jordan playing bass. Okay, so, uh, and I used to take acid with Peter Jordan. So the thing is, is like, and I used to deal with Johnny Thunders when he was Johnny Gonzalez in the park, and I knew him. And the point is that they came up with a great idea, but they couldn't execute. And I thought, man, you know, if you could only have a band that, that could look like that and be better. And by the way, Kiss came out of that same world, and yeah. those guys had a great business head. They knew. You know, Kiss wasn't stupid. You know, Gene and Paul were also straight. They they knew that there was going to be a lot of work to do, and they had a vision of who they were, and they get derided like crazy, which is unfortunate. Um, I thought that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame wasn't legitimate until Kiss got in because, you know, I don't care you can hate them. They made a lot of people happy. Yep. They did a lot of good things. You know, Ace Frehley, people say to me, who are the best guitar players in the world? I said, well, the three most influential in America were Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, Ace Frehley. They go, how could you say Ace Frehley? I said, because more kids probably saw Ace play and wanted to become a rock star. That's all. He had a very influential effect on a lot of people. And I'm not so egotistical that I would deny him um, that, that, that absolutely objective opinion. You know, so anyway, Kiss is out there busting their ass. What I think is interesting is that if you ask, in 1973... ACDC, Judas Priest, Kiss, and Twisted Sister were all formed in that year. And if you were to have asked any of us in 73 how long we would have lasted, what do you think we would have said? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, end, the end of the year? <laughs> yeah, five years at most. Yeah. 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 And because in those days, the only band that lasted more than five years was the Beatles. They lasted 10. So maybe if I was being like hyper-intellectual Rolling Stone magazine reader and, you know, digester of all, you know, every essay written about anything, I may have said 10 years, but I thought Twist would last five years. You know, this December is my 49th year in the band. I mean, I need ibuprofen just to say those for you. <laughs> my, my motto at this age is sex, prescription drugs, and rock and roll. That's how long <laughs> I have been around. So uh, anyway, it was impossible to know that back then. But yes, hardwired, I believe that you have to be hardwired to, to do this. I don't know. I, and also one more thing, too, and that is when it comes to character development, people said, well, you develop such character. I said, you don't develop character. What, 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 what crises and catastrophes does is exposes character. It shows you what you're really made of. You know, when the shit hits the fan, that's when the inner you does come out. You know, I kind of wanted to ask you, if I handed you a book of a 20-year-old version of yourself, would you be taking your own advice, you think? And that's another really good question, because 20-year-olds ask me for advice all the time. And the first thing I want to say to them is, go fuck yourself. Don't ask a 7-year-old advice. <laughs> Figure it out yourself, idiot. That's what I did. That's my first, that's my initial desire to want to say to them, which is, what the fuck are you asking a 7-year-old guy his opinion for? You know, it has no relevance to your life. Sure. Um, okay. So, the, the, but the, here's the here's the truth. There's universal truths, and then there's specific truths. But the universal truth is that. So let's say a twenty year old kid comes up to me. Hey man, come see my band. And I go, How long have you been together? Two years. How many shows you play? Fifty, man. Fifty. I go fifty. What? Forty minute sets? Yeah, man. I say, When you get to five hundred, let me know. I'll come and see. Five hundred. That'll never happen. So there's a good chance that I'll never fucking come down and see your band. 
What do you mean by 100 shows? Well, if you look at the book, we, we did 120 shows a month for the first, you know, 18, no, for the first 36 months. I was only 4,000 shows in three years. You know, you get good by repetition. You get good, good by doing it. So anyway, so when I was a boy, when I was 20, gasoline was 23 cents a gallon. Nixon was president. House rental was $300 a month. The truck rental was $25 a week. Drinking age was 18. Plenty of record companies. So let's take a look at today's playing field. Gasoline's $5 a gallon. Truck rental's $1,000 a week. House rental, $5,000 a month. Drinking age, 21. There's no record companies left. And yeah. There's no clubs. Okay, so, so what is a young musician going to do? Well, a young musician depending on the genre they're into, looks around and sees other artists doing kind of what they're doing. And what I say to artists or I say to people in general or anyone with a company is before you're the Beatles, you better be better than the band next door. That's number one. You got to be better. So with Twisted Sister, for example, you know, we may have wanted to be the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin, but here we were starting out at the very beginning, making $150 a night. And the first question I said is, why is that band over there making 300 a night? Why are you making three? Why are you making 150? So I go to see that band. Started copying what they did. We changed our song listing. We just, we just, we did some things to change. Got the numbers up. You know, we started to go. We, we copied and became predatory. And you keep imitating, and then you kind of then will evolve into what you need to do. But you have to find something that's directly attainable to you, so that you can reach a short-term goal. Because if you don't reach short-term goals, you'll never go anywhere. You have to be. You have to validate yourself at some point along the way. So these days, obviously, things are different. So maybe it's social media presence. Maybe it's Instagram presence. Maybe it's it's whatever it is that an act is doing better than you, that is roughly doing a little better than you. Copy that way. So I call that observing your playing field. And if you're not smart enough to observe your playing field, if you're telling me you're so dumb that you have a dream and you have no fucking clue how to attain it, you got to ask me, then you're so fucking dumb you should <laughs> don't deserve to attain your fucking dream. Okay? Anyone who really wants the dream will have really come to the conclusion of, I know how to do it. I'm going to go copy that guy. I'm going to figure out what that guy is doing. You know, if you say to me, I want to be a rock star, what you're saying is you don't want to do the work to be a rock star. You just want to be one. And it takes work to be successful. You guys are on radio how many years? Tell me. Oh, eight, I'd say. Okay. Seven, mm -hmm. eight. Great. Now and what was it like in the very beginning? <laughs> well, Difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, our three listeners will tell you it was pretty tough. Yeah, and you know what I tell people? I said, just because someone tells you you suck doesn't mean you don't suck. Right. You could sure. very well suck. And if you do suck, figure out why you suck. So people would, we get rejection letters from record companies, you know, and, and, and bands will go, oh, man, we're great, we're great, we're great. We get these rejection letters, and we kind of look at them, and we go, okay. Maybe, you know, maybe they have a point there. Oh, I don't agree with that, but I agree with that. I don't agree with that. I agree with that. So what do you do when you're rejected? You, uh, you basically mourn the rejection. You, um, you reflect on the rejection. You retool and you reapply. These, these formulations that I have just described are business analysis coming from a heavy metal guitar player who was once a drug dealer who's so practical it almost makes your mother look like a junkie. And you go, well, how do you so practical? And that's because the piece of me that was always a business person realized that I was responding to these issues this way naturally. But in fact, I kept diaries for years because I go into the book about the first, the first real 
disaster that hit the band was when the original singer pulled a gun out and the drummer and threatened to kill him in a bar fight. And I walked in and saw this and thought I was about to witness a murder. And if at least I was going to be a witness at a, at a trial for either murder or severely critical, critically injured person. And the, the, the singer threw the gun away and got in a fist fight. And we fired him and the guitar player hired uh, a meth addict. <laughs> you know, so and, and then that destroyed this. Uh, so the first part of the, the first band got was destroyed. But the thing is, when when that happened and the band, the first band broke up, my my girlfriend left me. and My mom died in the same week. And I went into a crushing depression that lasted nine months. And it, that forever changed my life because it was my response to that depression, which was almost suicidal. Um, caused me to reflect, and I survived that without a therapist, which was stupid. Uh, I would never do that again, and I would never. I always counsel people: if you're that depressed, please, 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 seek professional help. Absolutely, seek professional help. Don't try to do it alone. I was too chicken to kill myself, but I wanted to. I was in so much emotional pain. Um, but the point is that that was the first takedown, and that was such a destructive takedown in my head. And it took me so long to recover from that, and I kept my diary. I started my diaries at that time that after all the other setbacks and all the crazy shit that happened afterwards, all the massive successes, and then the crushing bankruptcies that followed, instead of being depressed about them, I almost laughed at them in a Seinfeldian irony of, 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 of humor. Like, oh, great, John, you're that smart, and you know, here you are in bankruptcy court. Oh, great, John, you're that smart, and this shit happened again. Um, I was able to handle it in a more bemused fashion only because I had survived the worst of it all. So yes, the point that you made about, about being humble enough to be honest enough about how bad things can get when they're bad. Yep. Um, yeah. I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the message that I'm, I'm, I'm sending because the book at the end of the day is more of a self-help business book than it is a rock and roll tell all. Wouldn't you mm -hmm. say that's about a fair estimate? Yeah, mm -hmm. without a doubt. Yeah. And not only that, but you, you also, you also uh, had a battle with prostate cancer. And, and I really want to say thank you for the work you've done for prostate cancer awareness. Um, what, what kind of, what's your line about that when people are, are, when you're trying to really make people more aware, what's your, you're a guy that has a, you, know, you have a plan for everything. How are you driving that home when you're, when you're working on the awareness piece? Well, you want me to speak? To prostate cancer specifically, I will speak to prostate cancer specifically. That that would be great. I okay. I really appreciate it. I, right. I I have survivors in my family, and and I just I wanted to say thanks and ask you about it. All right. So that came on towards the very end of the writing of the book, which is why I didn't get into it with my, a lot, because and it didn't really matter because the way I approach my prostate cancer is the way I approach everything, which is I did a lot of research. I became as knowledgeable as I could. I had, already had plenty of warning because my PSAs were crawling up. I had five biopsies. Prostate biopsies are not the nicest things in the world. And I had five. I'm the fifth one they found the cancer. Um, but when I talk to guys and they go, oh, man, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm so concerned about the sexual component. And I 100% and get it because it's very, the response to prostate cancer treatment can be so varied, really, really varied. But the first, the first decision you have to say is, do I want to live or do I want to die? So if you choose to live, then there's a million options you can choose. If you choose to die, then, then die. But my father died of it, undiagnosed. And my brother and I kind of figured at the age that he died, which was 73, he probably had it for five or six years undiagnosed. And, 
And my brother at the age of 66 was diagnosed with it. And then when I turned 66, I was diagnosed with it, which really says to me that all the tofu in the fucking world would not have changed this diagnosis. This was in my cellular structure. Mm -hmm. I read everything that I could about it. And, and by the time it was diagnosed, I knew exactly the doctor, exactly the hospital, exactly the treatment. There was no question. I said, I want to live and I'm going to do this. And I immediately dealt with it. Now, I'm three years after, you know, as of today, I'm cancer free. I'm realistic to tell you enough to know you're never, ever cancer free in your brain because at any time, you know, it can come back and it can. Like a woman, they say if a woman has breast cancer and there's nothing for five years, she's out of the woods. But that's really not true. I don't think you're ever out of the woods, but you may die of something else. Um, but I always get my blood test you know, every six months and make mm-hmm. sure everything's okay. And uh, so far everything is fine. And I'm here and much to the chagrin of my daughter who says, why do you take such good care of yourself? And I said, to make your life as miserable as I can. <laughs> <laughs> it's not why we're here. I mean, is that really the whole point of why I'm still here? It's just to make your life fucking miserable. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. So that's, that's what I tell men about prostate cancer that, you know, you can't stick your head in the sand. You, you have to kind of face it head on and, 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 and get a great doctor and do all the research do a lot of research and find a great doctor. There's just no other way I can put this. You know, there's a lot of doctors out there and 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 find the best possible doctor and and deal with it head on and don't put your head in the sand. Because if you deal with it too late and it breaks out of the it breaks out of the um, prostate sac and gets into your uh, lymph nodes, mm-hmm. then you're dealing with a much bigger issue. Yeah. Right. Um, and then there's radiation and there's all sorts of stuff that comes with it. And they can deal with all of that anyway. But why not just get it early? If you can get it early and, and put yourself and save yourself all of that extra nonsense. And so all pro, all that that, um, um, that that avoiding the subject does is is uh, it, it puts you in, in more danger later on. So, you know, I would just say face face it if you can. And, and I did. And it's it's tough, by the way. Surgery was tough, and coming back from it was was tough. But you know, what's the choice? Well, what choices are there? Right. And you want you can die. That that's mm-hmm. fine. But um, if you want to live, no, you gotta you gotta face it head on. But you know, I also had two heart operations, uh, atrial fibrillation. The first one almost killed me, and the second operation s- saved my life and cured me. And that was a space age operation, where they do everything through catheters and they burn your heart muscle and. And uh, they cause scar tissue to rise up around your pulmonary vein and stop atrial fibrillation. And that's, you know, atrial fibrillation is another horrible condition. And my daughter has uveitis, which is the leading cause of blindness among girls um, under six. And it's an orphan's disease, meaning it wasn't connected to any other disease. And there was no arthritis in my family. And my daughter was diagnosed with uveitis, which I'm sure you guys have never heard of. Correct? Correct. Correct. Right. Okay. So the uvea is the middle lens of your eye. And for reasons that nobody understands, your white blood cells decide that your UV is being attacked, so they attack the, the, the lens of your eye and attach themselves to the lens. And if enough of the white cells attach themselves to the lens and you don't remove them, they choke off the oxygen supply. Imagine taking a um, piece of saran wrap, covering it with, um, with syrup, and then taking a feather pillow and throwing it up in the air and watching the feathers land on the saran wrap. Uh, Eventually, they'd attach themselves all over the saran wrap and cover them. Well, that's what happens with uveitis. So you have to get rid of those cells before they do permanent damage to the lens. And there's two ways you get rid of those cells. You do it with um, steroid drops, 
which can ultimately lead to blindness. How's that for Hobson's choice? Right. Or you do it through um, heavy-duty immunosuppressive drugs, which are not a walk in the park, and some of them can be very expensive. And the other problem with uveitis is there's only one specialist in the world, whereas with colon cancer, heart heart uh, heart disease, prostate cancer, breast cancer, there's every every city has a specialist, right? Everyone, there's like a million specialists. You don't have that with uveitis. You got one guy, Dr. Stephen Foster. He has one hospital up in Massachusetts. I fundraised for that hospital. Once my daughter was diagnosed, um, I learned everything I could about this disease. Now, by the way, again, because this is a rather serious subject, I know you have a comedy show. I don't know how to handle this thing with that much humor. Than, totally fine. Than to educate people as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, if you're a parent, you're only as happy as your sickest kid. Yep. And, and, and so therefore, you know, you'll move heaven and earth to make your kid better. You'll do everything you can try to do to, to make your, your, your kid better. And so I learned about a disease that I had no intention of ever wanting to learn about. Like, I don't want to learn about uveitis. Well, guess what? I had to know, I had to learn about it. I didn't want to learn about atrial fibrillation. Guess what? I had to learn about it. I didn't want to know about prostate cancer. Guess what? I had to learn about it. So the more you educate yourself, the better you are prepared to deal with these, uh, these situations when they happen to you. Yeah, and I think, listen, JJ, we're we're running out of time here, but I think this is a, the way that we ended this is perfect because you just talked about two very important and critical moments in your life that could have been dealt with in a number of ways. You could have you could have easily rolled over on these things. You could have easily thrown your hands up and said, well, I don't know. I guess I had bad luck and that's the way shit goes. And you didn't. You met these problems head on. And I think that's one of the takeaways from the book as well, is that throughout your life, you've been met with certain setbacks, some large, some small. You've met them all head on and you've come out for the most part, a better person on the other side of these things because of the way that you address these things. So I can't emphasize enough. The book is called Twisted, Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. You can find it wherever books are sold. JJ also has a podcast. It's called the JJ French Connection Beyond the Music. You can check that out anywhere podcasts are offered. Uh, JJ, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. It's been fantastic talking to you. The one thing I will end by saying, because our, our listeners would kill us if we didn't ask, and I'll keep this very brief, is there any news on the Twisted Sister front to speak of? Or No, I mean, we're, there's a, a double vinyl album coming out in November because uh -huh. vinyl is very popular. And yeah. And it's a greatest hits on one album and best of live uh, UK, which is because we have some of the greatest concerts we're recording in the UK on the other album. And that'll be out. So that comes out in November. There is no reunion talk. We all had dinner last year. And believe it or not, we never even brought up the conversation of playing. Again. So when people <laughs> yeah. ask me, are you guys going to play? We reformed in 2003 for two years. and We wound up staying together 14 years. So <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it's fair to say we won't. But I'll never say never because I said never once before. And we did. So I'll never say it again. But there are no plans. But I will say that we're not going to take it. And I want to rock are the two most licensed songs in the history of, of 80s metal. We're very proud of that. We're in more TV shows, commercial soundtracks. And those songs live on. So even if a 10-year-old kid does not know who Twisted Sister is, when you start singing, we're not going to take yeah. it they saying we're not going to take mm -hmm. it and i'm very proud of that i'm extremely proud of that legacy and i'm proud of d and i'm proud of mark and i'm proud of eddie and aj and the sacrifices that those guys all gave because it because we lived a life that most people don't ever have the opportunity to live it and it's extraordinary and be able to put it in this book which by the way is available on amazon if you can't get locally anywhere else of course amazon will deliver everything you want um uh, read the book and, and, and understand that it really is it was uh, it's a template for business. It's a template for life. 
it was great writing it and it was really great talking to you guys because you spent time reading it and i i appreciate your questions you bet the book is twisted business lessons from my life in rock and roll let's give one more round of applause for mr jj french wasn't that awesome once again we're absolutely grateful and thankful to have jj french of twisted sister on the dave and steve show we hope you enjoyed it as well hey we're gonna go take a break for a little while we'll see you on this other side of this commercial we're not gonna take it john tortello games and the dave and steve show fun factory proudly present the hottest new game on the market the official dave and steve show board game Set up the board, grab the dice, and take on the exciting role of middle-aged men pretending to be radio personalities at home as you recreate all of your favorite Dave and Steve show moments. One, two, three, four. Oh, neat! I landed on the what did you do last week square. Time to draw a card and find out what exciting stuff I get to talk about. It says allergies acting up. That's kind of lame. I'm going to draw again. Yard work? Hang on, let me try one more. Crockpot recipes? Oh, what the f***? Nothing recreates the sadness of three aging has-beens living out their radio fantasies quite like the official Dave and Steve Show board game. One, two, three. Uh-oh. Draw a technical difficulties card. I wonder what that will be. Internet problems? Bad mic? Oh shoot, my webcam isn't working. Back two squares I go. And the official Dave and Steve show board game is fun for the whole family. Watch out, Dad. You're about to land on. Oh no, I landed on the body rash square. I guess we know what you'll be talking about the next three turns. The Dave and Steve Show board game comes with everything you need. Just strap on the plastic Dave and Steve Show headphones. Toy headphones, not functional. Grab your Dave and Steve Show microphone. Toy microphone does not work. And roll the dice to see who will be first to hit fame and fortune. Let's see. It looks like I get to book a guest. Time to draw a guest card. Oh, I hope it's someone famous. It says here, you reach out to a C-list celebrity, but they never email you back. Lose two turns. Huh? That's weird. That's what all these guest cards say. So race out today to your favorite gaming store, department store, or wherever high-quality board games are sold, and ask for the official Dave and Steve Show board game. You'll be glad you did. Hi, this is Steve of the Dave and Steve Show. Believe me when I tell you that the official Dave and Steve Show board game is the best Dave and Steve Show board game you can buy. Or my name isn't Steve of the Dave and Steve Show, makers of the hit board game, the official Dave and Steve Show board game. Hey everybody, let's order some Wild Horse Pizza and play another round. Yeah! Yeah! Managing a band is an important job, but managing a cover band has its own unique challenges. First, you need to talk about the band all the time, and when asked if you're the manager, deny that you are, and just call yourself a fan of fun music. Also, carefully craft a set list that is primarily aimed at women, since drunk women are infamous for dancing and screaming wildly after a song is finished. 
And lastly, have your band play Footloose. Now, I don't know why, but people need to hear this song when they're out having a good time, so do that. This has been Tracy. Steve is secretly managing a cover band. Minute. It's Steve has, he has so many side hustles going on and they're all, I feel like in one way or another, they're all in direct competition with this show. And I'm yes. not quite sure why that is. I'm not sure. You mark, mark my word. Those kids are going to save rock and roll. They're, they're going to do it. Yeah. Nobody's saving rock and roll. If, if, uh, if twisted sister were still around, I would, I would consider they might be able to, but nobody can now it's a lost cause. <laughs> Uh, we're going to keep things moving, given that we had a fantastic but long interview with JJ, and we're going to find out what Tracy has in the headlines. And now, straight from the Dave and Steve Show news desk in beautiful Anytown, USA Plaza, it's Tracy Green with this week's headlines. I rock! Our first story, a foolish Illinois tourist bucked Yellowstone National Park's rules and approached a massive mama grizzly bear to snap a photo. She's going to spend four days in jail. Samantha Daring of Carroll Springs, Illinois, was lucky to leave Roaring Mountain in Yellowstone without serious injury during the frightening May 10th encounter with a large animal who was protecting her three cubs. I, I don't like these laws. I don't like throwing people in jail for this. I say let them do it. Let them go. Let the dumb people go interact with bears and let them jump in the lion pit at the zoo and let them do all these things. We should not be protecting these people from themselves. If they're that stupid, let them get in. Let them let them attempt to put their arm around a bear for a selfie on Instagram. I'm all for it. Did I get too dark there? <laughs> Are you waiting for a point counterpoint on this? Because I, I I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of falling right in with you there. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. This is, yeah, it's really hard to argue more. against that because uh, it seemed like the bear was willing to sort of dish out the justice there. So, yeah. in addition to four days in federal custody, Daring, who pleaded guilty um, Wednesday to willfully remaining, approaching, and photographing wildlife within 100 yards was ordered to pay a $1,000 fine, make a $1,000 donation to a Yellowstone wildlife protection fund. Yeah. Uh, the also, same thing? She's also banned from the national park for one year. What was the closest you guys ever came? Have you ever come in close contact at all with a bear? Oh Yeah. Yeah, and, and it was my dad's fault. And we were up in Canada camping, and so uh, a, a bear and two cubs had come into our campsite. So um, my mom had hustled us all into um, our VW microbus at the time with uh, rakes and shovels and implements of destruction. But um, my dad decided, hey, I'm going to sit in the uh, campsite in the lawn chair because I have a better view of the bears out here. Yeah, sure. And so... My mom, I remember her like kind of just quietly, quietly, like through her teeth, like yelling at my dad, get in here. Did he, did he, he was, throw some zag nuts at him? Exactly. Pretty much. And then, um, so, um, yeah, it was just, it, I remember like, oh my gosh, my, my dad's going to die in Canada. I can't think of anything worse than that, but yeah, fortunately for him, it was, they were Canadian bears. So they just apologized a lot for being in your campsite and quite, yeah, they enough. were exceedingly polite yeah. and, uh, and they cleaned up. After they left. Steve, so. how about you? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Wendy and I were on a little hike up in Leavenworth one time and, uh, we looked up about 125, 150 yards away. Um, way up this very steep embankment was a bear digging into the side of this, um, you know, hill looking for something. And Wendy and I see this bear and we're like, Oh, well, that's, you know, that's not, that's not good. Um, and, uh, we're like, should we continue on the hike or should we, you know, head back? We're like, oh, maybe we'll just continue on the hike. So we, we walk a little bit further and then we hear like, we hear the bear. We don't see the bear. We hear like big branches breaking and like, like a small avalanche. And we look up and that bear is coming down the hill straight at us. And Wendy turns and says, do you think we should? And I'm already gone. Like yeah. I have already, yeah. I have already left. Yep. And Wendy was offended, but I'm like, look, it's not like I had, you know, a 30 second head start on Wendy is nothing. She's she, I, I knew she was coming. Um, I, yeah, it, it, I, it's shameful. I shouldn't have done that, but, uh, but yeah, that bear, I, I was, I was ready to get back, um, as fast as possible today. Yeah, I'm uh, just going to say there were a couple of drops in there. We're going to definitely highlight for next week. But the one thing I will say is, uh, I had, you know, in our neighborhood here, we've got, we do have bear that sort of wander around and our neighbor not too long ago, it's been just a couple of weeks ago, actually sent my wife a message on Facebook to say, Hey, I just captured video of these this mama bear and her two cubs they went from our yard and climbed through the bushes and went into your yard so they're probably in there now but by the time my wife saw it it had been you know 20 minutes and so there was nothing but we also You're outside with headphones on yeah right? yeah our neighbor on the other side uh actually chased a bear out of his yard once through our yard and down the back ravine that we have. And so it's a weird thing because we know there's bears all over the place. We've had our garbage cans tipped over and, and had the stuff strewn everywhere like a couple of neighbors did at the same on the same day. So we've had bear all around us, but we've never actually seen one ourselves. We were yeah, out. That, that sounds like ghosts. Right. You just said a ghost story. Yeah, we had ghost yeah. bears. Uh, we were out on a walk once, and and I'm listen. If you've seen a bear run or you've seen a bear move, even as a cub, they have a very particular way of moving that's pretty distinct. And I I had my glasses on. If I didn't have my glasses on, I would have said ah, I was just a dog or something. But I had glasses on, so I could actually see. And we saw, I saw what looked like a small bear cub shoot into the bushes not far in front of us. And we cut the run sh or the walk short. We're just like. If that was a cub, the mom's there, like we need to head back quickly. And so we we're kind of looking over our shoulders as I did, as we did. But that also could have been a dog or something. I, I don't know for sure. So I can't say that I've ever actually seen a bear in the flesh up close other than at a zoo, which is a, a weird thing to say, given where we grew up, Steve, the the forest around us, all the trees and hills and all that kind of I've, I've never it, I just have never seen one. It's weird. Hmm. You, you, you'll see one tomorrow. Right. It'll, yeah. Well, that's how it'll happen. Hey, our second story, a Tennessee entrepreneur whose hot tub on wheels is one of downtown Nashville's best known party vehicles, but it's been told to stop operating a public swimming pool without a permit. A lawsuit says now Nashville's metropolitan government asked a judge to temporarily shut down the mobile tub in a lawsuit filed last week. Uh, the Tennessean reporter uh, said that a hearing uh, scheduled next Wednesday. Now, the health department informed the Music City Party Tub of the violation on August 11th, 
according to the report. The party vehicle has been a regular presence in Nashville's downtown entertainment district since 2019 and is touted on a website as allowing at least six or seven revelers to soak at one time. I would never, I would never, ever, ever get in that thing. And I understand it's a hot tub. I understand that heat can help kill things. I know there's chlorine involved, all that. But you think about the level of drunk people that have been in that hot tub and the amount of bodily fluids that have been released from every single hole imaginable into that hot tub. No way on God's green earth would I ever get in a party hot tub in Nashville, Tennessee. All things being equal, how are you? What are you? Where are you guys stand on hot tubs in general? I don't, I don't like hot tubs. They, they I, I get itchy in them. I, I, when I get in a hot tub, I feel almost the same way I feel when I get in a sauna, which is, I'm, I think I'm supposed to enjoy this, but really I'm literally staring at the seconds on the watch to see when I get to get out again. I'm not comfortable in one. Steve, I know you're, you, you don't mind a good hot tub, right? I used to be really like very pro hot tub, but if you get in the wrong hot tub, you get out with a rash that's going to need a cream from a doctor. Like <laughs> not even, not even like I can go get something over the counter. You need to go yeah. to a doctor and they need to say, were you in a hot tub? Rash, because they watch. know they, they 100% know, yeah. you know, and it's, uh, so I'm, I'm leery of different hot tubs. Um, my parents had one. I loved it. It was great. Um, I used to use it a lot. Um, you know, but you know, that even the hot tubs at like the health club, the, the nice health club that, I go to, I'm yeah. not going in there, yeah. but I'm not going in there. Not because I don't think that hot tub's clean. I think that hot tub's clean. It's the, it's the predatory dudes that are in there naked that I, that I'm not like, that I'm not excited about, you know, yeah. being in yeah, there yeah. with. Tracy, yeah. how about you? Where do you stand on yeah, hot tubs? I, I don't like hot tubs at all. And uh, I do like saunas, but the thing is like, I don't like steam rooms because steam rooms have like a lot of naked European men. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and that's, that's just awkward. Good uh, so like a a rocket, I'm out of there like as fast as I can be. I don't yeah. want to be in a hot tub, but uh or or a steam room. But a sauna, I'm okay with. Yeah, we, we we rented a cabin a couple of summers ago. It had a hot tub in it. The hot tub was obviously very clean and well kept. We got in it as a family within five minutes. I was ready to get out. I was over the hot tub. There's just it's not you can't swim in the water, you just kind of sit there and and be hot be warm like it's just it ain't my jam so anyway please continue tracy anyway yeah they're 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 gonna go out of business <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's a dispute going on there but uh yeah i just hot tubs are stupid every time i go look at a house and if it has a hot tub in it and the real estate person's like oh and it has a hot tub and i'm like no. i wonder how much that'll cost to get rid of <laughs> yeah yeah our last more, house that more we, than you think the house that we bought before the one that we're in now had a hot tub and we just we immediately sorry about that uh, I, i've got encryption required on my hard drive for those of you wondering in the in the last house that we were in uh we it had a hot tub and we put it up for sale and we found somebody to sell it to buy it and they came and got a trailer when we, i told them flat out like i'm not helping i'm not doing anything with this thing you disconnect it you get it out of here and it's all yours and we sold it at a very reasonable price it was probably far too cheap for what a hot tub is worth and it was a nice hot tub but i knew we were never going to use it and i just wanted it gone yeah they're stupid that's basically what i'm saying hey our <laughs> final story many american families are having a hard time finding diapers for their infants and toddlers and the national 
Diaper Bank Network said one in three American families are in need of this baby item. Tracy, I don't know about you. Steve, you went you went cloth diapers, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, now, there were times when we would have a disposable or two uh, when we would go someplace. Like when you're traveling, it was always easier to, to use a disposable. But when we were at home, it was pretty much all cloth diaper. We did not care about the environment whatsoever. We went nothing but disposable. And when we were done with them, we would put them in a big pile and burn them outside. That's how we got rid of them. Uh, do what you got to do. We we did it. I mean, part partly because of the environment, but also like they typically kids typically like potty train a little faster when they are uncomfortable <laughs> sitting in their own urine. So so he 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 just he potty trained a little faster. No, I'm not. I, you're not. You're not. Getting, you're not pro or <laughs> you're not pro or con on this. Yeah, I I, I used to be once upon a time used to be very pro cloth diaper until we tried to use them. <laughs> and super, I was like, they are gross. They're yeah. I, gross. Uh, and so I was like, Whoa, I definitely am, was just talking out my butt on this one. Uh, so there's uh that's not happening. Yeah. yeah I remember. And I won't even say who this was, but it was a relative, but I won't say who it was, but I remember as a child, meaning probably like 10, 11 years old being at their house and seeing used cloth diapers floating in the toilet because they were so gross when they took them off they didn't know what else to do with them so they literally just put them in the in the clean toilet water and let them kind of soak in there to get the most of it out and then they would pull them out it was the most disgusting like i even back then i was like this is really gross and so i made a very conscious effort or decision at the age of 11 that I didn't care about the environment. I just didn't want to deal with poopy cloth diapers. Yeah, and uh, and if I am fortunate enough to be old enough to need uh, some kind of diapers again, uh, I definitely... You're going to go cloth? Uh, uh, I'm, so yeah, I'm can, going you cloth. You can retrain yourself to not yeah. lose your... <laughs> yes, so anyway. So companies are facing a labor shortage and difficulty getting uh, imports from countries that have been placed on temporary lockdown during the pandemic. Uh, there's also a backup of cargo ships apparently loaded with diapers at California ports, preventing these goods and services from being delivered to stores. Have you guys been hit at all uh, by any of the shortages? Have you gone to get something? Because there's shortages in literally every, almost every single possible thing you could think of right now for one reason or another. Have you been hit by any of them where you went for something and they didn't have it? Steve, you're going to go peach um, water, aren't you? No, oh. no. Um, I, I mean, I have noticed that the the water has has been coming and going in phases, so that's not that's not that big of a deal. Um, but I've noticed that there are some things that are out. Like like I did go to get um, some toilet paper uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they didn't have toilet paper, and they usually have toilet paper. I like I thought we were over that. Yeah, you know, yeah. problem. Um, I will say that uh, that companies that shouldn't be blaming the uh, the shortages on things are definitely using the um the pandemic as a reason why stuff isn't coming like i had a um uh, i ordered some special headphones for when i'm swimming long ago and and they were supposed to be here like in july and i keep getting these emails saying hey i know you s- we said that they were going to be here today but you know due to the all the stuff they're not going to be here today they're they're probably going to be here in a month and a half and then then it goes another you know month and a half and they say oh you know we said we was going to be here 
it, it's going to be a little longer. Like I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm like, look, tell me it's going to be here in six months. Right. Fine. Yeah. Don't tell me it's going to be here in a month and then tell me it's going to be here in a month and then tell, you know. Yeah, I'm really sorry your hoity-toity waterproof headphones didn't show up so you could swim with music in your your fancy gym that you go to that has chandeliers hanging in the changing room. Tracy, how about you? Not a thing. Yeah. Not a, not a thing. I, every <laughs> single thing I want in life Steve, is, uh, is available Steve, to me. Steve's just got clenched teeth because I didn't let him respond. So, uh, no, let's move on, Tracy. What else you got? No, that's the news, fellas. Oh, damn it. I, I am going to get those headphones. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm happy. I'm happy being the heel again right. on the show. No big deal. Once again, we want to thank our guest, uh, Mr. J.J. French from Twisted. I can't say it, but I want to say it. Twisted effing sister. Uh, amazing interview. Funny guy. You can tell he's uh, he's lived a hell of a life. And what's great about him is that he lived it drug and alcohol free. And I only say that because I don't give a shit if you take drugs or alcohol. I'm saying it's great from our vantage point because he has a lot of great stories to share that he remembers vividly because yes. he wasn't he wasn't messed up on a bunch of stuff. So Yeah, and his book his book as a as they said, a bizoir, uh, is fantastic. It has good advice. It is a very focusing book talking about basically focusing on certain aspects that are, not, are bigger, bigger than just business, but I think there are a lot of good life advice too. But when you see the sort of the origin story about how it is that he arrived there, it's, it begins very, uh, very fast and is uh, very rewarding. And a lot of times when we, when we have guests on that have a book, it really forces us to read very quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and that's not something I am known for at all. And so, uh, so this was a, a good read, and uh, and so it was great to have him on. Once again, the book is Twisted Business. You can find it everywhere. As he said, you can find it on Amazon right now, but you can get it anywhere books are sold. Go out, get yourself a copy. It'll help you out, uh, regardless of what line of work you're in. You don't have to be a rock and roller to appreciate the book. And on top of that, because it is this mix of a business book, but an also, also an autobiography of a guy who was in one of the largest bands on the planet for a, a moment or two, it's just a good read. There's a lot of really good stories in there and things that most of us will never, never experience on our own. So go pick up the book. Check it out. Thanks again to JJ. Before we get the hell out of here, because we've run long with the interview. Steve, anything else from you? No, I think uh, I think I'm done. Okay. I think I'm done. Well, good luck on those headphones, buddy. Tracy, anything else from you? Not another thing. No. All right. For Steve, for Tracy, for me, Dave, we'll talk to you next time right here on the Dave and Steve Show. <laughs>